How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. I was blind, but now I see. The song reflected his own life. Grace was truly amazing to John because he was so aware of what a sinful wretch that he was. Now, if we're honest, grace can easily not be so amazing to us. In fact, if we were to write that song, we might change the words from amazing grace to something like expected grace. Of course God is going to show me grace because he doesn't have to do as much to save me. After all, I'm not a slave trader like like John Newton was. I never did the kinds of things that he did. Sure, I, I need grace, but John Newton and people like John Newton, well, they need way more grace than I do. Is this true of you? Do you see grace as more expected than amazing? Or maybe you see heaven as the place that, that good people go to. That makes sense to people. It does. It, it fits with how they imagine that heaven must operate. See, by, by human reasoning, it seems fair that heaven is for good people and hell is for bad people. But have you noticed that most people's definition of a good person, it always seems to include themselves. All of us are self-righteous in our own way. Most of us, we would not recognize ourselves as being self-righteous, but that's what we are by nature. Few people, other than perhaps genuine Christians, consider themselves to be bad or to have done wrong. It's the norm to view oneself as good, or at least mainly good. To understand real Christianity correctly, we need to grasp a very surprising fact which goes against our instincts. It's that to get to heaven, to have eternal life, is something that we can never earn. It's something that we don't deserve through our own efforts or through our goodness. There's nothing that you can ever do to be good enough to earn your place in heaven. See, grace truly is amazing, but the only way that we'll see it as amazing and not expected is by understanding what great sinners we are. And that is what the Apostle Paul is looking to do at the outset of his letter to the Romans. His goal is to show us how deep our sin goes by by turning the lens of Scripture on us. And what he shows you is that you don't have to actually be a slave trader to be a great sinner. Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 3. I'd like you to follow along with me as I read from what Paul says about us in verses 9 through 20. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. 
What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Have you ever heard a recording of yourself And when you heard it, you thought, do do I really sound like that? We can be just like that when it comes to our sin. Did I really do that? Did I really think that? Did I really say that? I didn't know my heart was capable of such sin. And this is because our sinful hearts are also deceitful. May They make us think that we are better than we actually are. And what Paul discusses here in this passage is where we get a very important biblical doctrine called total depravity. This doctrine is an explanation of what we are like apart from Christ. The moment Christ enters your life, he begins to change you. You still sin. You sin often. You sin still in many ways, but the doctrine of total depravity is what a person is like without Christ. It simply means that we are sinful in every category and in every way and much deeper than we think. There's a common misunderstanding about what this doctrine means. Uh, Total depravity does not mean that we are as sinful as we could possibly be. And thankfully, God, by his common grace, he restrains man's sinfulness to keep man from doing far more sinful things than already happens all over the place in our world, every day, every moment. In other words, as bad as man can be, things could be much worse. And they would be worse if God were not restraining mankind's sinfulness. Total depravity means that sin pervades every part of man's being. Perhaps it would be better named pervasive depravity. And what Paul wants us to recognize is that our sin runs deeper, it runs wider, it runs farther in us than we think. And realizing this is not necessarily encouraging. It's not necessarily uplifting. But one good effect it does do when we focus on this 
is we start to see how amazing God's grace truly is. You start to sing that song with greater appreciation and depth of emotion because you realize you don't have to be a slave trader for grace to be amazing. You just need to see what you are apart from Christ. And it's not just amazing that God would save a John Newton. It's amazing that God would save you. The title of this sermon is Mankind's Great Sinfulness. Mankind's Great Sinfulness. Paul's going to show us three truths about all men everywhere apart from Christ, which includes each one of us. Man's sinfulness is pervasive. Man's sin is personal. And man's situation is perilous. But my, my hope is not simply that you will see this is true of all mankind generally. That you will see this true of you personally. And so if you wrote those points down, I would encourage you to put this X through man's and write my instead. My sinfulness is pervasive. My sin is personal. And my situation, and in parentheses here means apart from Christ, is perilous. You must understand that I'm speaking to you this morning. I'm speaking to you personally. I'm not speaking to everyone here in general. Or this, if you don't understand this, this sermon will be of no benefit to you. The way that Paul makes his argument here is he does it by pulling together several quotes about mankind from throughout the Old Testament. Now, if you have the New American Standard Bible, the Bible from underneath the seat in front of you, perhaps, that's New American, it gives you a visual clue that Paul is quoting from the Old Testament because it puts those statements in all capitals. In other versions, uh, if you have the ESV, the NIV, the Old Testament verses are just simply put in quotation marks. So you know it's not just Paul talking. He's quoting from Scripture. The question is, why is Paul doing it this way? Why isn't Paul just citing all the, the bad things that man has done? all the crimes he's done, all the thefts he's done, all the murders he's done, and so forth, right? Well, these certainly do point to mankind's sinfulness, right? But the reason that Paul is using these quotes from the Old Testament scriptures is because many in Paul's original audience who he was writing to were religious Jews. And many times those who grow up in religious households, like some of you children who are here today, you've grown up in a Christian home. And you've been surrounded by church and Bible verses and songs and all this. And, and you're swimming in all of this. And sometimes you forget that these things have to be received by you. It's not just true because you're in a Christian home. It's not true of you just because that's where you grew up. And so he's trying to reach those who tend not to see that these verses apply to them personally. Is that you? Are you unable to see your own sinfulness? Is it easy for you to assume the worst of others' motives while reserving the best judgment for yourself? 
I'm not angry. You just frustrate me. Right? Things like that. That's like saying, I'm not tired. I just haven't slept in a couple days. If you haven't slept in a couple days, you're tired. If you're frustrated, you're angry. And here's what Jesus says about anger. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. See, you may be able to fool others about your sin. You may even be fooling yourself about your sin. But no one is fooling God. And these are his words to you. So whether you consider yourself religious or not, Paul's purpose is to show you from his word, from God's own words, what God's assessment of you is. And it's not a pretty picture. Because what we're going to see this morning is that not only are you pervasively sinful, but you have personally sinned against God and others, making your situation extremely perilous. Not only are you pervasively sinful, but you have personally sinned against God and others, making your situation extremely perilous. Now, let's start by looking a little closer at verses 10 through 12, where God would want each one of us to come to a very sobering conclusion. Your sinfulness is pervasive. Your sinfulness is pervasive. And these verses are taken from Psalm 14. They're written by David, Israel's greatest king. He was a a man that God described as one who was after his own heart. And now most of you... Uh, even the kids, right? We know the story of King David. It means you know David is not looking down his nose at you in self-righteousness because he was a sinner just like you, just like me, and he knew it. And not only did David know it, but so do countless multitudes down through the ages. Why? Because God put his sin in the Bible for all of us to see. How would you like that? How would you like to be the poster child for sin? Because that's, in a sense, what David is. He was an adulterer. He was a thief. He coveted. He murdered And on and on and on. Most people say that in his actions surrounding Bathsheba, he broke the ten big ones, the ten commandments. He broke them all. So David's not looking down his nose at us when he says these things. He's speaking to himself. David knew God's grace was amazing because David knew that he was a great sinner. But these are more than just David's words. That's what we understand when we read the Bible. These are God's words. They're scripture. And Paul's going to make his point about man's pervasive sinfulness by showing from scripture that all men are corrupt in three ways. Their actions, their minds, and their wills. Now look at the case that Paul is making here. He says it's not just that we do bad things. We can't even think right. 
even our will, right, meaning our affections and our desires, even they are corrupt. And apart from Christ, every part of us is corrupted by sin. Paul starts by looking at our actions. He says, we have corrupt actions. He says, as it is written in verse 10, he says, there's none righteous, not even one. And what should stand out to you in this statement is is that it is absolute. Paul, he doesn't say that most people are unrighteous. He's not isolating his focus on on some depraved part of humanity that we'd all agree is sinful. The Nazis are unrighteous. No, he says, there's none righteous. Not even one. There was not a time when you were righteous and then became unrighteous. Like, let's say, right after you were born. See, this statement is unconditional. There are none righteous. Each of us was born into the category of sinner. It was, it was only a matter of time before your unrighteousness became evident to everyone. Would it surprise you that the average person in the world would disagree with this statement? Maybe that's you. How how do you think most people describe themselves morally? Most people see themselves as good. They see themselves as upright, moral. They do more good deeds than bad deeds. And a key part of this favorable assessment is the standard that is used. That's the key part here. Most people naturally compare themselves where? To other people. They evaluate themselves by looking at the wicked things that that people do and then they assume that since, well, they haven't done that terrible thing, whatever it might be, well, then I'm okay. I haven't done that. In their eyes, their good still outweighs any of the bad things that they've done. Paul, though, is revealing the standard here that God uses. And it's not a comparison with someone else. It's not doing more good than bad. The standard is absolute, pure, perfect, righteous law. If you were to turn back to chapter 2 and look at verse 13, there you see, it is not the hearers of the law who are just, before God, right? Righteous before God. It's the, but the doers of the law will be justified. See, when you're comparing yourself to others, you may look decent. But when you compare yourself to God's law, you are comparing yourself to God. And no one looks righteous comparing themselves to a holy God. We fall far short of his glory. So what we must realize is that our actions simply aren't what we think they are. Our actions that we would say are are good, are they actually, truly, really good? Good things can be done with a selfish motive. Our best actions are easily tainted by sinful intent. Our position without God is that no one can qualify as righteous according to God's standards. Our self-perception is, is quite warped. Kind of like those when you go to um, 
the state fair or you go to some amusement park and you see those mirrors in which you stand in front and, and you look super short or super fat or super tall and stretched out. Our, that's our self-perception. And what Paul is doing here is he's, he's holding up the mirror of God's word. And it's a clear, clear view of what you are and your heart is like. It's the reflection of the real you. That's what God's doing here. Let's move on to the second way that all men are corrupt. First, all men are corrupt in their actions. Second, we also are, have corrupt minds. Verse 11, there's none who understands, he says. And Paul is making an important distinction about sin. Uh, would you agree that when most people think about sin, they think about something that people do? Lie, cheat steal. That's what people think about. But Paul here, he's showing that sin also affects the way you think. There is a cognitive, intellectual dimension to sin. Think of all the ways that you sin in your thoughts. You, you can think in a way that is sinfully dishonoring to God, in ways that are not true, in ways that are not pure or good, or you can devise ways to pursue evil. We do it all the time. And Paul is pointing out here that when it comes to thin, sin, it, it doesn't just affect the way you act. Sin also affects the way you think. Did you know that sin prevents people from rightly understanding God? Rightly understanding spiritual things? The Bible says that a natural man, meaning as opposed to a spiritual man, one who has the spirit of God, Bible says a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God for... Their foolishness to him. He can't understand them because they're spiritually appraised. See, anyone who thinks the things of God are foolish is simply revealing his or her own sinfulness. Think of how often you are hearing these days about scientists and professors and leaders and celebrities in our world mocking Christianity. Declaring that Christians are nothing more than religious zealots who, who can't think for their, themselves. We shouldn't be surprised by their rejection of Christianity. But why? Because their minds cannot, can't, cannot comprehend these truths. They cannot rightly understand truths that require the Spirit's help to discern. Just remember, though, that the, the same was true of each of us. Right? The same was true of each one of us before Christ enabled our minds to understand the gospel and then begin more and more to understand him. Right? The gospel was foolishness to us. We tend to think that if something is true, well, then most people will believe it, right? Wrong. We tend to think that if most people don't believe something, it must be false. But Paul is saying here, that is not the way things work when it comes to Christ, when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the things of God. Contrary to what some think, man's biggest obstacle to believing in God is not just a lack of information. At the beginning of Romans, in the first chapter, Paul talked about how non-Christians, how they can look at the created world. And they can, they can even know that God exists. But still... In their unrighteousness, they suppress that truth by their choice. 
And so this means that when you hear people in the world declaring in some way that Christianity is false or foolish, it's coming from people who are not thinking rightly. The fall, sin, right? It's corrupted all men's minds. How then is the non-Christian to understand the gospel? Well, it should be clear. God must first open our eyes. Now, in addition to our corrupt actions and our corrupt minds, Paul thirdly shows that our wills are also corrupt. We have corrupt wills. Paul points out that people are not just sinning in what they do or in how they think, but they also sin in what they desire, what they love, what they want. He says in verse 11, there is none who seeks for God. See, the non-Christian doesn't love God, doesn't want God, doesn't seek God, doesn't desire God, because man's heart, right, which is the source of our desires, he has a disposition that is bent away from God. Can you think of a food that you absolutely will not eat? Some folks have a genuine aversion to certain foods like green vegetables. Can't do it. I haven't come across any of those really for me yet. You know, anything that I just, I just cannot touch it. I haven't quite come across any of those. I did try beef tongue once. And I can say I would not want to try it again. Now, before you go and cook your Lola's favorite Dila recipe for me, your beef tongue recipe, my version is not really the taste. It's that texture, right? I, I can't get over those big cow tongue bump things in my mouth, you know? It's just like, yeah. So I'm sure it tastes fantastic. But no, thank you. I don't want any. John MacArthur once said during the pandemic, he said, I want my fresca. And he received cases and cases and cases of fresca. I do not want to receive any tongue, beef tongue recipes from you to show me how wrong I am. You eat your tongue. I'm going to choose other meats. But this helps us to understand the way that non-Christians think about God. It's an issue of taste, maybe texture too, for that matter, right? Some things you love, while other things you absolutely cannot stand the smell or taste or texture. It's detestable to you. The non-Christian cannot love, desire, want, or seek for God because he is not the aroma of life to them. He's the stench of death. Do you want to be around something that smells like death to you? Right? Those apart from Christ, they have no taste for God. And this is why Paul can say, there is none who seeks for God. And this is the natural state of the person apart from Christ. They don't desire him. And they don't seek for him. They don't want him. Now that's not to say there aren't plenty of people in the world who consider themselves spiritual. I put those quotes around, those air quotes around it to say, because <laughs> spiritual is a pretty nebulous concept. whole lot of things can be stuffed into the bag of spiritual. <clears throat> they would typically say they believe in God. They are seeking some encounter with the divine. 
They say they believe God is guiding them in various mystical ways and things like that. But such people aren't seeking or desiring God as he has revealed himself in the Bible. What they're after is a God on their own terms, a God of their own making, a God who makes them happy, which in simple terms, that's defining all the other religions that are in the world. They are gods made up by men to suit their own desires. Some of them even call them Jesus, but it's not the Jesus as revealed in the scriptures. They're gods made up by men to suit their own desires. You usually find this out, Uh, that being spiritual is not the same as being a Christian when you start talking about what God says about himself in the Bible. And when you're doing that, you're hearing things like, my God's not exclusive like that. My God accepts and loves everyone. My God would never send anyone to hell. They may be spiritual people, but they have no desire or affection for God as he's revealed himself in the Bible. And Paul sums up the mind of the non-Christian. He does it in chapter 8 of Romans, verse 7. He says, the mind set on the flesh. That's how Paul is describing the mind of the non-Christian person. He says, the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. He hates God. The person in whom the Spirit of God has not worked has no desire to submit to, follow, or obey God. They would suggest that believing the the superstitious fairy tales of the Bible, that it's beneath them, Christianity's morals and standards are archaic, they're harmful, they're hurtful, they're hateful. And this isn't the result of their intellectual or moral superiority, though they may come across that way. It's the result of their hostility towards God. Do you seek to be around someone that you can't stand? I trust you're not married to them. That can be hard sometimes. But we don't generally want to be around people that we can't stand. And the same is true for the non-Christian and God. They don't seek for or obey God because they can't stand God. But here's the real kicker. Obedience to God on their part is impossible. Listen to how the rest of the verse goes. That one from Romans 8 that I was mentioning, verse, Romans 8, verse 7. It says, The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. I'm not going to do that. And then he adds in, For it is not even able to do so. Even if sinful man wanted to obey God, which he doesn't, they aren't even able. And Paul is painting a picture for us of man apart from Christ. He's totally depraved, depraved, or as we've also said, he's pervasively depraved. There's nothing in us untainted or unaffected by sin. Our actions are tainted. Our minds are tainted. Our wills are tainted so that we do wrong things. We think wrongly about God, about others, nor can we understand him. We don't want God. We don't seek for him because we don't find him wonderful. We find him distasteful in varying ways and to varying degrees. So we'll seek to find that which appeals to us where, where we are, but we won't seek the God as he has revealed himself in Scripture. And this ought to raise a very critical question in your head. <clears throat> if this is the state 
of sinful man apart from Christ, how does someone ever become a Christian? You might be thinking that all they need to do is believe. But as we just heard, a person who hates God, who has a heart that doesn't desire God, who wants nothing to do with God, isn't simply just going to wake up one day and decide by himself to just start loving and seeking Jesus. Our depravity is so pervasive that apart from Christ, we are absolutely helpless to save ourselves. We can... And the reason, spiritually speaking, is because the Bible describes us as dead. We can help ourselves as much as someone who is dead can help themselves. We cannot change ourselves. We cannot, we cannot make ourselves see something that we are blind to. We cannot make ourselves delight in God or love him on our own. And Paul is saying <clears throat> the foundation here for something he's going to bring out later on in this letter, which we're not going to get into right now, namely that the only way a person like this, apart from Christ, can be saved is if God first initiates, if he first intervenes and saves. And the only way a person apart from Christ can be saved is if God comes in and he powerfully transforms their hearts, which he says he does through the work of the Spirit. And there's a word for this. It's called conversion. The theological term is regeneration. And this describes the change that the Spirit does in a person's heart to enable Someone to believe. Someone who is apart from Christ and is blind to Christ is enabled to believe by the Spirit of Christ. And God wants those he's saved to know this. But do you need to know this to become a Christian? Absolutely not. What you need to know is that you're a sinner and you can't save yourself. Your salvation is only possible through faith in Jesus Christ. He came to save you from your sins by dying the death your sins deserved. It is your repentance from your sin. It is your belief in Christ and what he did that results in Christ saving you. Oh, but for the Christian, these truths that I was just talking about, there are wonderful implications from understanding that your salvation is entirely from beginning to end God's doing. Let me ask you the following question. Does faith in Jesus give you a new heart? Or does faith come from a new heart? See, if you grasp what the Bible is saying about your depravity, you should be able to see that you you can't believe without a new heart. And so where does this new heart come from? Ah, it comes from God. And it comes through the transforming work of his spirit. Your salvation is 100% a result of God's mercy on you to enable you to believe in his son. And you, take, you can't take any credit for your salvation. Our response of love for God was a result of him first loving us and converting us by the powerful working of his spirit in our hearts. He opened our blind eyes to see the glory of Christ. He was always glorious. You were just blind to it. And he allowed you to see. And that's why you came. And if you hadn't done that, friend, you'd still be lost in your sin. This is why grace is so amazing. Now, Paul's not done. He's, he's shown us the first truth about all mankind apart from Christ. 
which is that man's sinfulness is pervasive. The second thing that he shows us, and he does this in verses 13 to 18, is that your sin is personal. In talking about sin's pervasiveness in man, Paul gave general categories of sin. Corrupt actions, corrupt minds, corrupt wills. But now Paul highlights some sins that shows the personal nature of our sin. It's not just you sin in general. No, you choose to do it. And you choose to do it in certain ways. And he's going to categorize these things for us. He highlights some sins that show the personal nature of our sin. It's against God. It's against others by your choice. He mentions three body parts to do this. He talks about the mouth and the feet and the eyes. And these are Old Testament categories. Mouth, feet, eyes are three ways that man sins against God and against others. And each of these body parts, they relate to sin in a specific way. First, Paul connects our mouths with, well, that one's pretty obvious, our hurtful words. Again, he's quoting from David, a different psalm, though. Now he's quoting from Psalm 5, and he says here in verse 13, he says, Their throat is an open grave with their tongues they keep deceiving. And then he jumps over to Psalm 140, also written by David. He says, The poison of asps is under their lips. And then from Psalm 10, which isn't attributed to anyone specifically, it just says, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. See, we sin against God and others with the hurtful words that come out of our mouths. Paul first relates our words to the stench that comes out of an open tomb, which I don't know, has anybody here opened up a tomb and smells what comes out of that, you know? a week after the burial or anything like that. I think we can just trust that it stinks. Maybe you had a dead animal that you couldn't find. A rat crawled up into your duct somewhere and died and you smelled it until they found it. You know, we, we understand the stench of death is something we want to get away from. Nothing good comes out of an open grave that can be, and that can be true, he says, of our mouths. Paul also relates our use of words to the bite of a poisonous snake. The bite of an asp is filled with poison and so can be the words of your mouth. With our words, we can slander, malign, accuse, disparage, tear down, complain, grumble, and on and on. Of all the examples of sin that Paul could have used, why do you think he chose the tongue? Because 99.99% of everybody has a tongue. We all got something to say, so we can all relate. But Jesus made it clear that our words reveal more about us than, than we realize. Our words reveal our heart. In Matthew 15, Jesus says, it's not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, like what you eat. It's what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles the man. Do you see what Jesus has done here? He has just condemned all the religions of the world that say that what you do or what you don't do is what makes you acceptable to God. Live however you want, but just make sure you do these religious things, these religious ceremonies. Avoid the things that defile you, like 
certain clothes or certain foods or things like that. And you can live however you want and go to heaven. See, that's man-centered religion. You get to do whatever you want as long as you do these certain religious things. And God will check the box and you get to get into heaven. No, Jesus says. The problem is not without. The problem is not what you do or don't do. The problem is within. It's what comes out of you. That reveals that you are defiled. Your words don't corrupt you. They reveal the corruption within you. And Jesus said, controlling your tongue, it's impossible. Nobody here can raise their hand and say, I have never sinned with my tongue. Nobody. And if you do, you're a liar and you just did. You've got to put your hand down. As tiny as this tongue is, it has the potential to cause incredible destruction. Some of you have been on the receiving end of that. And some of you have been on the giving end of that. Think of how greatly this contrasts with God. Right? Our God speaks. His words are life. Our words bring harm. They stink of death and they are poisonous. How are you using your tongue? How do you speak to others? How do you speak about others when they're not around? Do you realize that what you say is revealing what you are on the inside? Does that concern you? Next is the feet, which Paul relates to harmful actions, which we do to those who are in our path. Paul quotes here from the prophet Isaiah, and he says, who's saying this about all men, he says, their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. See, if you have a broken relationship with God, you know what's going to also result in? Broken relationships with others. That doesn't mean that if you don't have a broken relationship with God, you don't also have broken relationships. Right? That is certainly true, too. Not trying to put ourselves above others just because we're Christians and we have a right relationship with God. No, we can destroy things too. Refer to the previous point. Almost all the news that we hear about, it involves conflicts between people. Theft, lawsuits, murder. Right? Human beings are in constant conflict with one another. Feet are swiftly moving to shed blood somewhere right now at this very moment. And these conflicts, they continue because of the pervasive sinfulness of mankind. Sure, you can choose to bury the hatchet with someone. But that doesn't resolve anything. It merely puts the conflict on pause. It just kicks that conflict down the road for a little bit until the next incident. Broken relationships and conflicts between people are simply the byproduct of man's broken relationship with God. And then last are the eyes. Paul ties the eyes to our haughty ways, our prideful ways, because we see nothing in God that causes us to fear him as we should. Paul turns back to quoting from David. This time it's Psalm 36. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, the face, it often conveys one's arrogance, some haughtiness and pride. You know, you can just picture the haughty person, you know, looking down on someone. 
sneering. You know, those are, those are the ways with our face we convey and we easily misinterpret. Have you ever been misinterpreted for being prideful when all you're doing is just standing against the wall with no expression? That's why it's a good idea to just try to keep a smile on your face all the time. People won't assume wrong things about you. Our face conveys a lot. How much of our sin is due to our pride? How much of our sin is due to our lack of fear of God? You know, when criminals don't fear authorities, they commit crimes. When people don't fear punishment, they'll even commit crimes brazenly, broad day, right in the middle of the grocery store, walk out with a bag looking at the security guard with their cart full of groceries. I dare you to stop me. This lack of fear of earthly authorities, such as the police, it's born of a lack of fear of God. You may get away with that grocery. You may get away with that car. You may get away with cheating on your taxes. But you only get away with it until you stand before Almighty God who sees you, everything about you. You stand completely bare before him. He sees it all. And that should make you fear him. It should. So Paul's made his case. Apart from Christ, we find man's sinfulness is pervasive because his thoughts and desires are corrupt, leading to corrupt actions. And this is not theoretical sinfulness. It is against others. We hurt others with our words. We harm others by our actions. We are haughty in our ways. And so what is Paul's conclusion about all men apart from Christ? This is the final point. Your situation is perilous. Apart from Christ, your situation is perilous. And Paul has been making this case really since chapter 1. But here in this section, he's bringing his argument to a close. And he does so here with two simple conclusions in verses 19 and 20. The first conclusion. Again, this is all of Romans 1 through 3. The first conclusion is that all the world is guilty before God. Verse 19, we, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. So you will try to offer your excuses for your sin. You will say that you are in some separate category, that you should be exempt for some reason. You're going to point to your vain attempts to obey. But what Paul is wanting you to see is that God's law is just going to close your mouth. Close your mouth. Every man, every woman, every child stands guilty before God without a word that they can say in their defense. But remember, if you're going to gain from this, you've got to make this personal. You are guilty before God. But not only that, secondly, you are accountable to God. As is everyone in the world. The second conclusion is that all the world is accountable to God. It's not just enough that we're guilty. You're going to answer for that. He says, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You know this. You know you're a sinner. The law has unveiled who you really are. And Paul, he's acting like a lawyer here. He's just made his closing arguments in the case against all mankind, against you. 
There's, there's nothing that you can say to excuse yourself. There is no legal loophole that you can put. Oh, this trial is in the wrong jurisdiction, so it has to be shut down. I go free. No. All the world is guilty before God. The law that the Jews thought would save them only condemns them along with the rest of the world. All the world is accountable. And as we bring this sobering sermon here to a close, here's a question for you. What are you more surprised by? God's judgment or God's mercy? See, many people are shocked and offended by God's judgment of their sinfulness. They accuse God of being harsh, of being wrathful, as if, as if he doesn't have reason. But all we need to do is make an honest accounting of our actions, of our thoughts, of our desires, of our words, our ways, and we know that we can say nothing in our defense. What should cause us to be utterly shocked is that God would show mercy to any of us. And this is what makes God's grace so amazing. Even though we were justly deserving of his condemnation, he showed us mercy. And that's what we're going to focus on next week, his mercy. How can a holy God justly show mercy to sinful people like us? We can't excuse our sin. Can God? Does God, because he's God, just get to look the other way and allow, you know, his hand-picked favorites into heaven? Is that, is that the way this works? No. God only allows the righteous into heaven. Sin's wages is death. And those wages must be paid. And so next week, we're going to look at how many would say, what many would say is the most important section in all of Scripture. Because it explains how a holy God is able to show his amazing mercy to sinners like you and me. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we've asked and pray that you would show us Christ. And what we've what really has been shown and given is, is the anticipation for Christ. We've seen the holiness of Christ, and we should all cower before that. We've seen the authority of Christ, and we should all bow to that. We can only stamp our feet and go our own way for so long. Death will catch up to every one of us. You will return and even those alive will bow before you because they will know that they have been foolish. But it will be too late. And so we do long to see Christ in all his mercy, in all his kindness. We've seen him in all his justice and authority. And it should, even in the Christian, instill a sense of fear. Why do I still sin against him? Oh, help even those who are now contemplating sin or caught up in it remember that Christ freed them through his death, that they can turn from this.
Sin shall not be master any longer. Thank you for the freedom we have in him. Thank you for the love that we receive from him and the mercy and grace through the cross. In Christ's name, amen.